With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. It's Tuesday night, and that means it's time for the MMA Torch Tuesday night live cast. Uh, my name is Rich Hansen. I'm sitting in for our esteemed host, Jamie Pennick, who is homesick for the eighth time so far this winter. Uh, joining me, as always, is MMA Torch columnist Matt Pelkey, and special guest tonight, I called you special, Alvin, MMA Torch uh, columnist Alvin Benjamin Carter III. We call him ABC. Matt, how are you doing tonight? Doing good, Rich. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. And Alvin, oh, ABC, how are you doing tonight? Wonderful. You guys? I'm doing well myself. We are uh, finally getting into a very busy stretch of MMA after three whole weeks off of major Saturday night events. We're going to be looking at six of the next seven Saturday nights with either major UFC or major Strike Force events, and eight out of ten. It's going to be absolutely crazy. And there is quite a bit to talk about leading into this. And tonight we're going to lead off the show talking about the changes to the Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix. Uh, when we last convened a week ago, uh, the rules were still unknown, unknown publicly, but it was implied that the title was going to be on the line in any fight that Alistair Overeem was in or in any fight where Overeem's conqueror was in. And that has since been changed. The heavyweight title for Strike Force, meaningful as it may be, is no longer on the line in this tournament. That's right. Bragging rights are more important to Strike Force than their heavyweight championship belt. They will also be fighting for a made up belt and the title of champion, which is right up there with uh the women's tournament title prestige that uh Misha Tate won back in, in uh August to win the title of number three in the division. Um, Alvin, I want to go to you first. Uh, what are your initial thoughts about Scott Coker marking out for himself? Um, I think that Coker really, first I thought he wasn't thinking. I was like, your title has to be on the line. What's the point? And then I guess I understand um, kind of along the lines how you, uh, how you posted in the roundtable. I guess if you realize it doesn't mean anything in the first place, well, then why bother? And with the chances of since the way the bracket's set up and when it looks like you might know who's going to win, um, it's kind of a better way to go and re-legitimize the title in a really backwards way. Um, you get someone good to get through this, they're now legitimate, and then they fight Overeem if it's not Overeem, and that kind of gives it a little more weight. Otherwise, he'll say, well, you know, if there wasn't this Grand Prix, why does this person get to fight? Who actually is, you know, 
number two or the number one contender, number two in strike force anyway. So I guess he's built a true contendership. So it's it's not all bad, but um, I would like to see the title on the line sometime before the end of the year or next year. Well, uh, let me uh, swing it to you, Matt. Would would it not add more credibility to the title by having it be defended three times this year throughout the tournament against the likes of Fabricio Verdum, Fedora Melianenko, Josh Barnett, as opposed to having it sit idle while the champion who holds the belt might lose in a three-round fight? Well, it's sat idle for most of the last you know three years anyway, so who, what's another two years or however long it's going to take to complete this uh tournament that we're speaking of i i think that strike force just needs to stop thinking out loud they need to uh, finalize their plans and then let everybody know what's going on instead of well we're going to do a heavyweight grand prix which means uh we floated the idea around amongst ourselves but haven't actually talked to any of the talent about whether or not they'd be willing to compete to then they talk to everybody and get everybody on board with with this idea and then start throwing out ideas like, oh, well, the title will be defended uh, every time the champion fights. You know, if Overeem loses in the first round, whoever wins that will defend the title in the next fight, and then the next fight, that's fine. Uh, except it sounds like this was basically uh, the fighters coming together and probably not wanting to fight five rounds, because there's no real other logical explanation for them saying that they wanted to do that and then it not happening. Uh, they could have made every fight in the tournament five rounds, regardless of whether or not the title was on the line, um, but they didn't do that either. Uh, I think if they had just come forward from the beginning and said, we're doing, it's it's just a, a heavyweight Grand Prix, the title won't be on the line, uh, the winner will be named a, a Grand Prix champion, whatever you want to call it, uh, and then provided it's not Alistair Overeem who wins the tournament, then you have a title contender after that. But because they put Mighty these big, ideas yeah. in everybody's head, then that's what we were coming to expect and hope for, and to just have it pulled out from underneath us for no reason. Uh, I think that's what, what people are going to be upset about. But it doesn't change the structure of the tournament too much. It just changes a couple of fights from being five-rounders to three-rounders. And let's be honest, uh, with Overeem as the champion, it's not like those title fights are going to be lasting five rounds anyway. So I think it's going to end up being much do about nothing. I'm just more concerned with actually getting this up and running. I think what's going on is that Scott Coker is talking before Ken Hirschman is telling him what to say. And then Ken Hirschman, who uh, uh, the uh, exec out at Showtime, is putting his thumb on top of Scott Coker and pushing him down and then not letting Coker up until Ken's, Ken Hirschman's words come out of Scott Coker's mouth. That's what I think is going on here. Um, because if you look at the way this tournament is seated and the way it was originally, if not explained, at least interpreted by the public, Overeem was going to start in the first round fighting against the number one contender for the title. Winner of that would face most likely Fedor or Antonio Silva, who if he beats Fedor would be a very credible uh, challenger. And then the next fight in the tournament for whoever comes out of that half of the bracket would be fighting either Barnett, Karatanov, or Arlovsky. And one of those three guys would be coming off at least two wins in a row and would be the next credible opponent. So it seems anecdotally that the the original thought on this tournament was to do it in that manner with the title on the line. And for some reason, Scott Coker changed his mind, whether it was because Showtime, you know, stepped on him and said no, or whether it was that he just, like I said, marked out for his own concept. We'll, we'll never know because Scott Coker uses a whole lot of words to say very, very little when you actually analyze it. 
Um, Alvin, do you think Showtime was at all responsible for changing the format of this tournament from what we perceived it to have been originally, or do you think there's some other reason going on here? I think we'll. I think with this, we probably really won't know. Um, Showtime is a possibility, but then again, it goes back to: Do we know why Strike Force has done a lot of the things they've done in the past year and a half? Um, it's you know, it's hard to tell. Um, the concept of maybe the fighters didn't want to that was mentioned have five round fights, or maybe just just random things happen with Strike Force, and you have to really wonder what is the point. And like you said. Why do they think out loud before they finish thinking? Um, you know, there's a time to have a press conference and there's a time to go back to your team and try to plan out the next three main major events rather than just talk about them casually. So I really, I really can't say, to be honest, but um, I just think it might be a little bit of lack of preparation or not completely going through the game plan, seeing where they want to end up next year. And I think after they revisited, no matter who was in on the meeting, they realized maybe we should make alterations, but... It, this point, it made half of the public mad, and half of the public just doesn't care. Matt, I got a question for you. With uh, all of the, maybe it's not chaos, but you know, I'm a simpleton for all the chaos that's been going on with Strike Force in the last week, with this, uh, you know, the the perceived change in the format of the tournament. Has it dampened your enthusiasm at all? I mean, I know you're hardcore. This is what you do. You're going to watch all the fights, but is, has it has it left a little bit of a bitter taste in your mouth? And you go, eh, well, I'm still going to watch, but. I'm not as hyped as I was, or or does it not matter to you in the least? Uh, to be honest with you, I mean, I, I'm like everybody else. A title being on the line just makes it mean more for me. Uh, the, the pay-per-view numbers for the UFC back that up consistently. The the cards headlined by a title fight do better than the ones not headlined by a title fight. So there's there's obviously something Not including special. Gray Maynard. Right. Uh, there's obviously something special when a title is going to be on the line, so that would have been an intriguing aspect of everything. But like I said, it's it's still going to be the exact same fighters. It's still going to be the exact same fights, and I don't think we were going to see a five-round fight in the first place anyway. So it's it's not like we're all of a sudden going, man, now the Strike Force heavyweight title is going to be sitting on the shelf for a year because of this. It's been sitting on the shelf for years and years, so it's not like it's it was going to all of a sudden become the most prestigious, incredible uh, belt in the world anyway. So it's still the same, guys. It's I'm still going to watch, like you said, and it, not really. It really hasn't dampened my uh, enthusiasm, which sits at a solid 6.5 out of 10. Well, you mentioned something about the credibility of the belt, and uh, let, let me let me ask you guys this. I'll send it to both of you and let you uh, jump on the scraps here. There's this perception of a lineal title that, you know, comes down. Jonathan Snowden wrote about it a little bit today on Bloody Elbow, talking about, you know, if you go all the way back to the very first title and that champion loses to the next guy to the next guy, starting, you know, from Mark Holman on down, that Fabricio Verdum is the quote-unquote lineal champion. Combine that with Alistair Overeem, who, while he may not have a recent MMA history of beating top names, is, is a very if not credible, at least formidable opponent. Um, having Overeem defending that belt along with his K-1 success versus the mythical lineal champion, after three fights in this tournament, or three rounds of fights, Alvin, does that not help the credibility no matter who comes out of it, whether there's the title on the line the whole way through or not? I think just in general, the fact they're having this will help the credibility, yes. And I do think putting some of the talent against some of the talent, at least half of the guys in the bracket, 
in there that does help legitimize that that actual division is really what you have to legitimize because, you know, I actually think Overeem could be a legit champion already. It's just who's he fighting and when. Um, it just isn't happening often. But if the division becomes legitimate, um, you know, lineal championship or not, that helps the title count again. And depending who ends up with the title, even though it probably will stay in the same hands, um, you know, having them fight more after this. Um, now the question I think, I'm already thinking, so let's say this plays out. I have a couple of ways I think it could play out. What goes on after all these guys? Who who then is in the running? How What does their division look like? How many people are going to be kind of to the wayside for challenging for the belt and who's left to go for it now? Or, so that's to me what it looks like. This whole thing is just kind of giving a little bit more credibility to Strike Force's heavyweight division, providing they keep fighting after the fact. Matt, you want to jump in there and follow up on that same question? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that the belt the belt really isn't important here. It's it's not going to legitimize the belt either way. It's going to legitimize whichever fighter comes out on top because whoever comes out of this is going to have beaten three very good heavyweights other than uh, if Andre Arlovsky wins in the first round, then Brett Rogers upsets, uh, you know, um, Josh Barnett Barnett. in the first round, yeah. Needlebutt. Maybe major, maybe Andre Arlovsky would have could have uh, the least impressive run through the tournament if things work out that way, and then you know defeats an alternate an alternate in the finals or something like that. But by and large, whoever comes out of this winning these three fights is going to have three wins over three really solid heavyweights. So whoever comes out on top is going to legitimize themselves as one of, if not the best heavyweight in the world. Uh, the belt is just kind of a detail at this point because it's not been. Uh, important in the last few years. Strike Force has been putting together these this pretty solid heavyweight division. They've put on some fairly solid heavyweight fights and none of them have involved the title. So uh, the the title's taking a back seat no matter what and it's just going to be a matter of let's figure out who um, maybe is the best heavyweight in the world. All right, we we've talked about the politics of it. I actually want to talk about the the fights themselves. I know we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but you know, the the first two fights are coming up in on February 12th. Uh Alvin, uh who's winning this thing? Uh, I'm I'm torn. I want to say this looks like it's Overeem's to win. Um but um me being one of those fan types, I really would love to see Fedor do do, do something to uh, kind of quiet folks who still might be like he's no longer invincible. That may be true, but he's still an awesome fighter. But um, I'm kind of feeling more than wanting Overeem uh, holding his ground and showing people he really is one of the best, if not the best, heavyweights out there. Matt Pelkey, same question. Who's winning this whole thing? Yeah, I gotta go with Overeem. Um, he's destroying everything in his path recently in the last few years, really. Um, I, I don't even think he'll end up matching up against Fedor. I think either Fedor loses uh, in the first round or breaks his hands on, on Bigfoot's head, um, and, and Overeem ends up, you know, facing an, an alternate in the second round and, and kind of breezes his way into the finals uh, and, and busts up whoever's there. I don't see anybody. Um, that can outmuscle him early into a fight uh, to get him to the ground, which would be the best place to get him, preferably on his back. Um, but Overeem is a very underrated grappler. We, we've all seen him, especially in his transform- transformation from uh, long, lanky 205er to 
absolute beast of a heavyweight. Um, he has a very solid ground game. He's got a, a Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Death lock of a guillotine that he could slap on anybody if they try and take him down early in a fight. Uh, and I just don't see anybody being able to get inside of him uh, to do that kind of damage before he lands uh, a big shot. He's he's the most skilled fighter in the tournament, uh, and it's his it's his to lose. And I think the bracket sets up pretty nicely for him. Yeah, I I would love to see Overeem versus Fedor. I think we are going to see that. Um, I I don't think I can predict and you know Bigfoot Silva to win that fight, and I certainly don't think I can predict the broken hands. And, and with considering the poster. You know, with, with uh, Fedor taking up three quarters of the poster in color, and everyone else getting a little one inch by one inch headshot in black and white, buried up in the corner. If Fedor breaks his hand, then they're just going to suspend the tournament until his hand gets healthy. They're not going to put Chad Griggs in for crying out loud. Uh, obviously, a lot of the talk in this tournament is on the Fedor over in Verdum Bigfoot half of the bracket. Uh, I don't think anyone's picking anyone out of the Barnett, Arlovsky, Karatanov half of the bracket. Um, but let, let's try this. Uh, Matt, I'm going to go right back to you. Who's coming out of that half of the bracket? I guess Magic says Barnett, but who really knows what we're going to get out of him? He's He's got to be rusty. He has been very active the last couple of years. Um, and who knows if, if uh, Brett Rogers lands a, a big punch early in that fight that could really throw a wrench in everything. Um, it's it's really a crapshoot over on that side. Karatanov is, uh, you know, not the same fighter he used to be. He's he's fatter and slower now than he used to be, but still everybody knows if you breathe on Andre Arlovsky hard enough, you can knock him over. Um, so, I, I mean, Arlovsky's very talented, uh, but his chin just leaves a question mark that I could I could never pick him to come out of that side. So I, I think it's really whoever emerges from the Josh Barnett Brett Rogers fight and. Just to be safe, I'll take Josh Barnett just based on what he's accomplished in the past. And Alvin, uh, are you taking the safe road too, the smart road, I should say, uh, thinking that Barnett's going to come out of that half? Yeah, it just it just what makes sense. I mean, yeah, there's it's really you look at it's almost like mass. That's what you get. That's what's left over um, when you subtract these other guys. I don't see anyone of a major major threat to Barnett. Um, Provided Barnett's all good to go and isn't roided up or anything, he'll be fine. Yeah, I'm, there, there's part of me that wants to to say that Karatanov can upset him. I think he's going to get past Arlovsky. I mean, but but Barnett's, I mean, he's got to buy in the first round, so that'll help shake off his rust. Hope I'm not being too disrespectful to the Grim. Um, and and I just don't see past the any path 
that doesn't include Barnett making it to the finals. I mean, obviously he's the new poster child for Scott Coker and Strike Force, and best wishes to them. Uh, it is quarter after the hour. You're listening to the MMA Torch Livecast Tuesday Conversation. If you'd like to join the conversation today, please call in 646-716-8090. You must press 1 on your keypad to indicate that you want to talk, and we'll try to get your calls in throughout the show. You can also join us in the chat room at blogtalkradio.com slash MMA Torch. We're here every Tuesday night from 9 until 10.30 Eastern. If you're listening to iTunes throughout the week, make sure to join us on Tuesdays Live. You can also follow us on the web throughout the week at MMATorch.com, as well as on your Android and iPhone apps. You can follow us on Twitter at Twitter.com slash MMATorch, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MMATorch. Hey, I know how to read. That's a lot of Speaking MMA of heavyweights, hey, MMATorch indeed. Uh Speaking of heavyweights, uh, believe it or not, Strikeforce does not have all the heavyweights in the world, and they do not have all of the headlines in the heavyweight division. As last week, Dana White shocked a lot of people by announcing that he has somehow coerced, persuaded, convinced Brock Lesnar to be one of the coaches on season 13 of The Ultimate Fighter. He will be facing off against Junior Dos Santos who is apparently not going to be getting an interim title shot against Lesnar and not going to be sitting out waiting for Cain Velasquez to heal from his shoulder surgery. This is a major coup for for the UFC and for Spike TV with some serious ramifications, seeing as how uh, UFC's contract with Spike TV is up at the end of this year and a big number with Lesnar could lead to much higher rights fee or maybe even... Uh, using that as an excuse for for UFC to jump to a larger network that doesn't play 20 hours of Mansers and 1,001 Ways to Die every week. Uh, Alvin, I want to ask you first, being our our Torch business specialist, um, I'm, I'm going to uh, approach this from the business side first. Uh, the way I explained it, does that kind of jibe with the way you're looking at it, that a, a really large number could lead to a possible realignment of UFC and cable? I definitely think it could. I think this is a a chance for them to say, all right, listen, Spike TV, we need more. Because if you look, while the Spike TV scenario has been pretty good, it's been awesome, actually, they still have worked with other different networks at the same time because there's just so many opportunities for programming. And I think that with these numbers, I think these numbers will – probably smash the Kimbo Slice numbers um, at, at times. And overall, I think it'll be at least up. But I think there'll be a few episodes where if, you know, the commercials are right, the previews are right, and there's some natural drama, I wonder with the language barrier versus Brock being silent and mad, will it really jive? But if it does, this could be very interesting, and UFC could really have something to show other networks and maybe try to go somewhere else where they – can get a, uh, more of the situation they want, and maybe the same fans, um, same demographic, plus some, because the demographic on Spike, as you mentioned by the viewing, is very specific. And when trying to grow, you don't just market to that demographic. You market to that demographic and then anyone that's adjacent, and that's pretty much what could happen. Uh, you're talking about the rating number. Do you think that they're going to match top, not match the Kimbo Slice season of Agony? I think they might top it just because if you look at the really? overall, overall, because if you look at the, the – I, I wrote a lot on those numbers um, that season, and there were some really good spikes of, of ratings. 
Ratings were great throughout, but really good spikes. But I think that there's a possibility it could top it because it's Brock Lesnar for one, and it's heavy, you know, they're heavyweight coaches. Um, and I think it's all really how they sell it. More, I think it was easier with um, with Kimbo Slice because his name is Kimbo Slice. We all seen a couple videos of him. So they didn't have to do anything. I think if the UFC really does what they need to do, the people editing the show really edit the show, um, this could be very interesting. So I think, will there be, you know, a number of shows that spike as high? No. But will overall, they might actually top those numbers in the end for overall viewership of the season. Matt, I want to follow up with you here on this. Um, Rock Lesnar got kind of slaughtered the last time he was in the cage. Uh, has that affected his aura? And you think maybe, you know, the, he he was selling a million pay-per-view buys by himself pretty much for three events in a row. And, and the million or million 100,000 people that saw him, you know, doing cartwheels um, as he was kind of fleeing Cain Velasquez, I know he was, you know, off balance and all. Is that gonna? Has that hurt his order to the point where maybe the cashers are gonna go, eh, don't care, and maybe it's gonna be a disappointing number after all? I think that's a good question. I think maybe part of the motivation here is is that the UFC and Brock Lesnar himself realized that maybe Brock needs to be built back up a little bit. Maybe some of his order has gone away and people getting a chance to see a different side of him for six weeks and, and get more Brock Lesnar than they've ever gotten before uh, is going to Is that a good to, thing, though? Well, who knows? We'll find out. Um, it depends on how he comes across on TV. They're going to have to, you know, base their advertising and promotion of the show around look at the crazy thing Brock does next week. Um, you know, comparing it to the the season of heavyweights with Kimo Slice, uh they could advertise, oh, well, Kimbo fights next week, so tune in, and yeah, five million people tuned in. I don't think there's going to be any episode where people uh, tune out, you know, tune in uh, in those kind of numbers for just to see what Brock Lesnar says or how he interacts with Junior Dos Santos. Uh, but I think, like Alvin was saying, the the steady across the board numbers uh, will probably surpass what what the uh, Kimbo Slice season did, just because. It's not relying upon is Brock fighting this week. It's he's on every week. He's going to be a focal point of the show every week, um, and it's going to be a matter of do people latch onto his personality and do they keep coming back. Uh, my guess is yes. He's he's an interesting person. He's he does still have that mystique about him uh, despite losing his last fight, uh, at least to a certain point. Um, so it's it's a gamble that they're taking, putting this much Brock Lesnar on TV after the last time we saw him, he was like you said doing not very girly cartwheels uh, around the ring. Yeah, one thing that I've noticed in both of your answers is we haven't heard three words spoken very often. Those words are Junior and Dos and Santos. Uh, It's pretty clear that UFC and Spike TV are relying on Brock Lesnar to pop a rating all by himself. But would, seeing as how Frank Mir didn't have a fight booked, and and I understand they're they're putting Junior in to get you know against Brock, but from a business standpoint, for the Ultimate Fighter, Matt might it have made more sense to choose Frank Mir instead of Junior Dos Santos because then you get a, a you know an American as opposed to a Brazilian who has a much better command of the English language, sometimes too good for his own benefit. Uh, an obvious history between the two and a rivalry. 
is did do you think obviously it's early that UFC and Spike TV are making a mistake by putting Junior Dos Santos on as the opposing coach as to Frank Mir and what would you have done if if it was the ball was in your court? I like the Dos Santos move. Obvious, excuse me. Obviously, like you said, if they put Frank Mir in there, you know you're going to have a combustible situation every single week. You have two English speakers who uh, there's no no language barrier. They can just hate each other back and forth on TV every single week, and people tune in for that. The only problem is that doesn't help the UFC in the future in any way. In fact, if if they were to coach against each other and if Frank Mir were to win, um, you know, Frank Mir, that doesn't help you at all either. Frank Mir is not going to be a staple of the heavyweight division over the next several years. Junior Dos Santos is, and this is the perfect uh, opportunity, the perfect juxtaposition to put him opposite Brock Lesnar uh, to get new eyes on him. Uh, to, to have people see him and, and get to know him for for maybe the first time, uh, and when he comes out and you know lands some big punches on Brock Lesnar and sends him sailing across the ring just like Cain Velasquez did, then people have already had time invested in him and and will you know cheer him raucously after he after he wins and and you'll have a new star. Uh, it's it's a move being made for the future. If if Brock Lesnar. Um, you know, it, it's Junior Dos Santos is getting the rub to use a uh, a pro wrestling term by being opposite oh, Brock Lesnar for for. I know, only do it, it to be it's ironic. Gonna happen. I do it because it's <laughs> accurate and it's a good comparison because they're two very similar sports. One's predetermined, one's not. Everything else is basically the same. But I just think that this is a, a good move for the future to get people uh, interested and invested in Junior Dos Santos because. In two years, it's not going to be uh, Junior Dos Santos, Cain Velasquez, Brock Lesnar, and Shane Carwin. It's going to be Junior Dos Santos, Cain Velasquez, Phil Davis, and Johnny Bones Jones. That's going to be your heavyweight division. So it's it's time to start building for the future right now, and I think that's uh, at least part of the motivation for this decision. Uh, Alvin, expand on, on Matt's thoughts and, and fill in some any gaps that might be there and tell me what you think about that. I do think it's definitely based on um, on the future and also based, I mean, not even so much long-term as in, you know, what's next um, as far as fights go. When you look at matchmaking, do they really want to throw Frank Mir back in there? Forget because he's, you know, he's not going to be there in two, three years. But it's just, do you really want to see Frank Mir um, possibly beat Brock Lesnar and then have to get some more fights? Um you know, against some relatively top competition. I'll be honest with you. I love Frank Mir. I'm not that excited at the moment after that last win. It was a win, but it just was lackluster. So I think they're they're smart. And as far as for me, I was still a bit shocked about not going with um, any of the lighter weights. But then I thought about it. They'll be here to stay. And, you know, why they still have natural height just off of, being a part of the UFC now and for the WEC ending in such an awesome and dramatic fashion that, uh, you know, maybe save that coaching for next time around or if any of the divisions really need a kick, you still have that ace in the pocket right there. So um, I think it'll be pretty interesting. And I do think this really is the Santos's chance to shine. And the only thing I'm wondering about is his level of English. I'm, from interviews, I can see it's, it's but so-so, but... I guess maybe, you know, he's ready and see how it plays out. Well, he's going to have to be. I I, I can't imagine that he'd be given this prime opportunity if everything he says can only be understood 
you know, by subtitles. And we're not talking like Aaron Wilkinson need for subtitles. We're talking real need for subtitles here. Uh, Alvin, just real quick answer. Uh, I, I'm just curious more than anything. Who did you think were going to be the coaches this season? With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Then 10 minutes before the announcement was made. I thought the coaches were going to be Miguel Tor. Sorry. Actually, Dominic Cruz and Uriah Faber. And Matt, same question. Yeah, same thing. Uh, weeks ago, I was leaning towards uh, Uriah Faber and Miguel Torres, but after Dominic Cruz's win over... Uh, Scott Jorgensen, it just seemed to, that the stars were aligning for that, but he had the, the Cruz injury, and, and Faber announced his uh, fighting, fighting Eddie Wineland, so that seemed out the window, and this kind of came out of left field, but there just didn't seem to be a whole lot of other options, so in a way it kind of made sense. See, I was pretty certain, I, I, I turned in the last week, and I was pretty sure that it was going to be uh, Frank Yeager and Gray Maynard, and I understand total lack of charisma, but they're hot right now. Yeah, obviously is made by the fact that, you know, people are actually talking about Gray Maynard not falling asleep before they get the third syllable of his name out there. So that's the way I thought they were going to do it and then, you know, really push the fight and put it into Vancouver. Obviously, that's not the way it went. This decision putting Brock Lesnar out there and heavyweights in general is going to be a boon for ratings. Might not be Kimbo ratings, but it'll be close. Um, that Those are the two big stories from last week. So I want to take a look forward, and on Saturday night, we've got the first UFC event in three weeks. Five years ago, to think that a UFC would be every three weeks and that we'd be pining for more, compare that to now, it's just crazy. Uh, UFC Ultimate uh, Fight Night excuse me, uh, from Fort Hood, Fight for the Troops, headlined by Evan Dunham versus Melvin Gillard. Uh, in a, Gillard was a replacement for Kenny Florian. And, Alvin, I want to shoot this one to you. Um, Melvin Gillard is known, obviously, as a huge power, you know, a bit of a loudmouth erratic. And that seems to have changed uh, based on the results of his last fight versus Jeremy Stevens at UFC 119. What are you expecting from Gillard? What are you expecting from Dunham? What are you expecting out of this main event fight? I'm expecting this to be actually a pretty entertaining main event. I'm really Kind of, I'm glad you didn't ask who I think would actually win, because uh, that to me would be interesting. But I'm excited to see Gallard wrestle. Um, I'm not quite sure. He's going to have to. Pardon me? I said he's going to have to. Oh, yeah. No, this is going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of guys trying to, well, not a lot of guys, these guys trying to tro- throw each other's weight around and really uh, really forcing the issue of uh, 
of ground game. I'm just, I just think it's going to be – I think there's a possibility uh, Dunham might actually really get him down quick and probably submit him. But um, I, I wanted to see what Gallard has for someone like Dunham. It's just a really interesting matchup, and it makes a lot of sense. And I think it actually is somewhat important for the division. So it's cool that the main event on a non-numbered event is actually going to count. Matt, are you more confident in Melvin Gillard based off of his performance against Jeremy Stevens, where he fought smart but uninspiring, for lack of a better word? It, it wasn't fireworks. Or, or are you saying, well, I've lost interest at least somewhat, or you're reserving judgment at this point, and maybe fireworks is what you need to defeat Evan Dunham? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I, I think his strategy worked well because he was fighting a guy like Jeremy Stevens, who was throwing caution in the wind, and, and Melvin Gillard knew, all right, I just need to make sure I'm not taken down, and I need to use my strikes to get in and get out while he's winding up for wild haymakers and missing with him. Uh, Evan Dunham's a completely different animal, much more dy- dynamic fighter than Jeremy Stevens. I, I think he's better on the feet and on the ground than Melvin Gillard. Uh, the question is whether or not he could get it to the ground. Uh, I think this will be a, a case where Melvin Gillard needs to keep the fight on the feet uh, and actually come out swinging, or else he's going to lose the fight on the feet. Uh, I don't think Greg Jackson's strategy is going to be a successful one for Melvin Gillard in this fight. So. Hopefully we'll see more of a return of the old Melvin Gillard who who throws more caution in the wind and is willing to let his hands go. But in the end, I don't think it's going to matter. I think Evan Dunham wins this fight, uh, whether it's on the feet, whether it's with Evan Dunham in top control or Evan Dunham on his back. Uh, I just think he has more ways to to get the job done. And I'm I'm just really sad that we didn't get to see the original uh, planned headliner of Kenny Florian versus Evan Dunham because that – uh, you know, it's not a huge step down. It's still a good test for a young fighter like Evan Dunham. Um, but that would have been the the quintessential test to see if he's really ready for uh, the, the the top level of lightweights. And uh, Melvin Gillard seems more like a, a holding pattern fight to me. Yeah, and Dana White's also said that he treats or he thinks of of Evan Dunham as an undefeated fighter because he doesn't, you know, he gave that fight to Sean Shirk, so in his mind, Evan Dunham's undefeated and has a win over Shirk. And that's why he was given, you know, a top five, top six UFC lightweight in Kenny Florian, who obviously had to pull out, and Melvin Gillard was, was the next big, you know, the next best option based on who was available and healthy and not booked at that time. Um, Alvin, you, you deferred before, but unfortunately I have the ability to come back to you. How does this fight play out and who's winning? Mm-hmm. I'm seeing Evan Dunham with a submission uh, kind of late in the first round or early in the second, um, and probably off his back, but um, not necessarily because Melvin Gillard was controlling, but because that's just might be where, where it ends up. And, um, yeah, that's where I see it. Yeah, let's not forget that Melvin Gillard is the same guy that, you know, got knocked down by a jab and, and guillotined in 20 seconds by Joe Stevenson a couple of years ago. He's certainly improved a lot since then, but it's not like you can just completely wrap up the holes in your game uh, that quickly. And Evan Dunham's going to be a guy that threatens him from everything, every single position, and eventually I think he's he's going to find his mark. Yeah, but I think the reason I, it would I, is uh, the, it would take even as long as I said is because I think Melvin Gillard's still going to be more evasive than anything, and then when he goes for his moment, I think that's when Evan Dunham will exploit him um, right there. I don't necessarily think he's gotten, you know, leaps and bounds better. He's definitely gotten better, but I think he'll, he'll still be more evasive. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I I would not be surprised if this goes to a decision. Um, I, I I mean, obviously Dunham's loss to Shirk, or as Wikipedia calls it, split robbery, went to a decision, and he went to decision versus Tyson Griffin, who you know until after that fight had never been finished in a fight until Gomi got a got his hand on him. Um, I see it playing out is is kind of a dull fight to be completely honest with you. I think Dunham's going to control Gallard and kind of do whatever he wants with him. I think Gallard's going to get frustrated and eventually turn back into swingy Gallard, uh, unless I'm underestimating the effect the effect that Greg Jackson has on Gallard's uh, mindset during the fight. Uh, it's probably going to go 15 minutes. I think it'll be unanimous. I. I of the five fights on the main card, this is the one that, to me, has the highest potential for a for a high suck factor. Um, one fight, to me, that has absolutely no potential for a high su- suck factor is a featherweight bout between Mark Hominick and George Roop. Mark Hominick has been promised a featherweight title shot versus Jose Aldo in Toronto at the Rogers Center with a victory. Um Hominick and Roop are training partners who actually discussed with each other whether they were going to split apart from each other before uh, signing on to this fight, signing off on it. Um, Hominick obviously was in one of the best fights of the year uh, in his uh, WC 49 fight versus Yves Jabouin, which I believe was Matt Pelkey's number one fight of the year. Did that hold up, Matt? It did not. Pettis Anderson. Oh, that's right. So your number two fight of the year. And George Roop is coming off of a head kick knockout over the unknockoutable uh, Korean zombie. So this sets up a return to the UFC for uh, George Roop facing off, like I was, uh, like I said in the setup, uh, a training partner, Mark Hominick. Uh Matt, I'm going to go to you first on this. Uh, the fact that they know each other so well is that going to make this fight more exciting because it's it's going to have to be more technical, or do you think? You know, opposite of me, that maybe it increases the chance of the suck factor rising because they'll know how to counter everything. Uh, I think it's going to be a slow fight starting out. Regardless, My, Mark Hominick's fights often are his fight against Steve Jabouin. Uh, he was he was taking some shots in the early going, just just trying to find his range. Same thing against Leonard Garcia. It took him a little while to start uh, getting in there and, and, and using his, his superior technique in that fight. And the fact that you know they know each other well, they've trained together, is, is only going to contribute to that. Um, but it it seems like a pretty clear-cut fight to me. Mark Hominick is better everywhere, significantly better on the feet, and I, and I don't see George Root being able to submit Mark Hominick, uh, especially with the motivation that Hominick has now. He's He's been a, a fighter for a long time. He's been working on his craft for a long time, and, and it's you know one step away. Um, and we've seen guys choke in this position before, but uh, I just, with especially with the matchup, I just don't see Mark Hominick uh, choking in this situation. And Let's be honest, this is the biggest fight on this card. Uh, it's it's more or less a number one contender fight. Obviously, George Roop's not going to get a title shot if he wins the fight, but Mark Hominick is, uh, so that's certainly more important than any other fight taking place on this card. Uh, it, I, I wish it was at least the co-main event. That would be nice to give it the proper respect that it deserves, but uh, I'm excited for a showcase for the featherweights, and, and uh, even though we, I think we can all agree Mark Hominick's going to get slaughtered when he goes up against Jose Aldo, uh, at least he's he's going to get his due for for putting in his time in the sport and and being a technician at what he does. And obviously, I should have mentioned before that Hominick is also returning to the UFC, having won a couple of fights back in '06 versus Eve Edwards, and I believe it was George Gorgel. 
he's also one of the very few fighters to to in the modern era of the UFC to leave the UFC off of a couple of victories. Uh, Alvin, uh, how do you see this playing out? Do you think that, like like I asked uh, Matt before, the fact that they know each other so well might dull the fight down a little bit because they're going to know how to defend everything? Uh, do you think that a uh, title shot being on the line for Hominick is going to make him come out like a ball of fire? I think Hominick's going to come out... Um who doesn't want to fight Jose Aldo right now, even though you know, for the most part, it's not going to look so I don't. good. But you're but you're, um, you're a fighter, so you're going to go out there and fight hard for it and then think you're about to get your title. So I think he will. Um, actually, when I, I kind of take that back. Come out like a ball of fire, fire, I'm not sure. I think he's going to be very ready, and if ready means he might be a little conservative and really pick his shots, that might be the case. Or if he thinks he can steamroll, through Roop, I think he might. But either way, I kind of see him taking this. Um, can't tell you how, but I can see him fighting the smart fight more so than the emotional fight, which some guys do when they're put uh, in a position where they're one step away from, from a title fight. I'm of the belief that if Roop's going to win this fight, he's going to have to win it quick because eventually Hominick's going to find his range. Um, he's going to. I think they're going to feel him, each other out, and then Hominick's going to find his range first just because he's better. And, and once he does, Roop's going to be going to have to land a big shot like he did against uh, Chang Sung Jong uh, to to beat Hominick. Um, but the fact that Mark Hominick has gone from you know undercards just a couple of fights ago, you know fighting Savant Young, Brian Caraway, to being this close to a title makes me wonder about the the featherweight division. And obviously the only thing we know is that other than Jose Aldo being great, we don't know a damn thing about what's going on in that division right now. Uh, Matt, I want to ask you, if Hominick loses, who in the hell is the most qualified UFC fighter to get the next title shot? And being in the UFC, this is a separate question, who actually will get the next title shot? That's a good question. Uh, he's vanquished I several tried. of the, the big name opponents so far. Obviously, we're not going to be seeing, you know, Mike Brown anytime soon uh, in, in the, the title picture. Uh, your eye favor has gone down to 135. Manny Gamburian still needs to, you know, win a fight at some point uh, before he's ready. So it's it's a new influx of people. Obviously, with the merger now, we're we're going to start seeing. We've already seen uh, Michihiro Omagawa sign. Uh, Kid Yamamoto's coming over. Obviously, at 135, but. Uh, we're going to start to see some of the, the, the bigger-name Japanese fighters where a lot of the, the great featherweights in the world are fighting uh, come over with, with some, the, the bigger opportunities in the UFC now. Uh, I, if, if Hominick loses, the thing that m- makes most sense to me would be the uh, Mendez-Omagawa uh, winner, um, especially now that we've found out that's going to be uh, a prelim that's, that's going to be aired, so people are actually going to be able to see it guaranteed. Um, but who knows? That that could certainly easily go to a three-round snoozer of a decision, and, and then they still have nobody they want to give the title fight to. So who knows? Maybe Hominick and George Root put on a great fight, and, and Root comes out on top and somehow sneaks himself into uh, a title fight with, with two high-profile victories in a row. It's it's just going to take a little while to get the entire situation sorted out once we get some of the, the bigger-name featherweights over. Some of the, the young guns, too, especially in the, from the WEC, the the Eric Cooks, the Dustin Poyers, uh, guys like that are, are going to have their time in the sun. Diego Nunes, um, you know, there's there's a lot of guys that are seem to be two steps away, uh, and nobody that's right on the cusp of title contention. Hence, uh, Mark Hominick getting a title fight by beating George 
George Roop. So uh, I think it's just a kind of a holding pattern right now. They just want to get a victim for Jose Aldo uh, to, to get people's eyes on him for the first time uh, in mass, uh, and, and then they'll worry about the next set of contenders down the line after that. Alvin, I got a question for you. How- With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How in the hell is the UFC going to build up a successful and thriving and, most importantly, profitable featherweight and bantamweight division if it, they seem, it seems so far that they're reluctant to give high-profile slots to the same level of featherweight and bantamweight that they give slots you know, to the other five divisions? They succeeded with the lightweight division, obviously, although... It's other than BJ Penn, it's yet to be seen whether a lightweight can headline a pay-per-view and, and be a smashing success. Uh, but, but to come back home, how are they going to to build up the featherweight and bantamweight divisions if they're so reticent to put them in high-profile pay-per-view and, and televised slots? Well, so far we also have to we have to look at it as it hasn't really been that much time, so there might have been other other things in the works that have kept it this way. But you also have to look at the UFC has basically when they put on fights, now it's just for them more of the fights are jam-packed. They might be looking at for the moment that the lighter weight fighters are giving more exciting. So when you go to a UFC event or to maybe make it so that with a new network deal, they air a full set of prelims or something and kind of split production costs for, you know, actual new fights which is a possibility that they have really good prelims. You know, you see some fast, quick, small guys really going at it, and then you buy the pay-per-view. And if not, you, you, you've now been exposed to these guys, and as they build over the next year, year and a half, people might actually grow. Fans that aren't that aware of them, who didn't watch as much of the WEC, will grow to have a couple of favorites. So I think it, the strategy could be a long-term strategy, and it also could be, well, now we're not worried about, you know, if the main card goes to crap, which has happened a number of times, do we have any reputable fights still on there? It's more like, you know, just kind of stacking it for their benefit. If, you know, three fights turn out not to be the fight they want, instead of worrying about how good the replacement is going to be for any particular fighter, they do have fights they can promote up to the main card. And sometimes they'll probably have a fight or two that could become a co-main event with another uh, new main event that might not be that strong. Matt, one year from now, or however far down the long... Let me, no, let me rephrase that. How long is it going to take, in your opinion, for the featherweight and bantamweight divisions to be at the same level of, I don't want to say prestige, but the same level of popularity as their most recent division, the lightweight division? Um, maybe a year or two. I think it's a matter of both at... Well, at 145, you have Jose Aldo, and that's that's a big deal. Just like uh, BJ Penn going down to lightweight and kind of being the heir apparent there, uh, you have that one star that people can identify with and, and get comfortable with and build around. Um, but aside from that, and at 135, 
you know, Dominic Cruz is a great champion, but obviously the the UFC is is keeping their fingers crossed that Uriah Faber has another title run in him because he can put that division on the map uh, before he eventually moves on to to whatever else he's going to do in a few years. Um, but I, I think it's just it, it takes time. You just got to keep putting these guys uh, in televised slots, knowing that they're going to give you great fights. They they never disappoint. It's the same thing that made the lightweight division popular. Everybody said, oh, we don't want to watch the little guys, and, and the UFC came out and said, well, you do want to watch the little guys because they're lighter and they're more exciting. Uh, and it turns out that's why it became one of the most exciting divisions in MMA, uh, and that's only going to be more so the case with the exposure that 135 and 145 are going to get. Um, I think it's key to do exactly what they're doing with Jose Aldo. Uh, he's somebody you need to get eyes on, so the, the plan is to put him as the co-main event, defending his title for the first time, uh, underneath George St. Pierre, Jake Shields at the Toronto show, also a card that's going to feature Randy Couture, Lyoto Machida. So that's that's guaranteeing you're getting a bunch of eyes on him and you're putting him in that co-main event slot and saying, look, this is really important. He's a champion. He's one of the best fighters in the world. Uh, and you're exposing them to that huge audience. You're going to have to keep putting the uh, the bigger bantamweight and featherweight fights underneath uh, huge fights that you know are going to attract a lot of eyes and that's how you get exposure to the product. But it's it's a matter of, you know, building that depth and, and beating into people's heads, you know, this is the reason that we had this merger. This is the reason we brought these guys over, because look at what they can do. And then the fights will sell themselves, and eventually people will latch on. And uh, two years from now, we won't even remember that 135 and 145 weren't part of the UFC two years ago. Uh, I want to get uh, another person's take on this. I believe I have just pulled onto the line Jason Amadi, MMA Torch columnist. Jason, are you there? Uh, yes, I am here. Yeah, uh, Jason, I, was, uh, I go ahead. No, I was just uh, just hearing you guys kind of uh, you know being a little rough on the 145-pound division. I was just uh, wondering, like um, you know, a lot of people are talking about how chaotic the division is and how you don't really know all that much. But I mean, just a few years ago. You know, Sokaju knocked out two top ten ranked uh, fighters in a row, you know, with uh, Ricardo Arona and uh, Little Nog. And then shortly thereafter, he fell off the map entirely. We found out that he wasn't anywhere near top ten level. And then the same thing with, uh, you know, Keith Jardine beat Chuck Liddell and Forrest Griffin had a number of, uh, you know, fights that went that way. And I was wondering, is it really that bad just because, you know, Diego Nunes uh, defeats Mike Brown and, Things like that happen. Well, I don't think it's bad at all. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I think what it's showing is that there is a ton of depth underneath Jose Aldo. We just don't know how far underneath because they keep knocking each other off. And, and I, I think it's it, it's representative of the fact that the featherweight division specifically is is a hugely talented and deep pool of sharks. And the only thing that I say I don't know is how good any of these guys are compared to each other. I mean, so many of the guys that are coming up now, you know, Nunes and, and Grisby and Poirier and Coke and, and Mendez are so young. And and they have, you know, such impressive credentials and talent, skills and, and, and composure that I think it's a – and then you bring in a guy like Omagawa, and maybe we'll see Fernandez and Sandro in some day. I, I think this is the best – or let me rephrase. I think this is the most interesting division 
And what's going to take a while to sort out isn't whether it's any good or not, but who, you know, the pecking order, you know, who's the best, who's the next best, so on and so forth. And to me, at least, when I say the division's chaotic, that's what's chaotic, is knowing where everyone fits inside the framework of the division. Yeah, you you have a good point there. Another interesting note is, uh, like, more established fighters like uh, Omegawa and and, uh, Mike Brown, who were former lightweights who failed at 155 and moved down to 145, you know, those are only make up like a small percentage of the guys at 145. Most of the guys are actually really young, like in their early, like 21, 22, 23, like Grisby and uh, Eric Koch and uh, Jose Aldo, including. So that's probably why we're, we don't know so much about people at 145 pounds because men who fight at 145 and 135 pounds generally are going to be in their early 20s. I'm pretty sure that's going to be the way it's going to play out for quite some time. Yeah, that that's another good point, that this is a division prone to having lighter fighters because generally you don't lose weight as you get older. Right, Alvin? Well, not if you're me. but uh... <laughs> Absolutely. Alvin, why don't you uh, pick up here? Um, no, I think that's that's really the key of it. Yeah, I don't think what's coming down, um, we were necessarily coming down critical on the fighters. It's just on what we know and what we've actually been able to see as everything stands right now for the for the for the way it looks. But I think it's interesting. I think there is one feather in the cap to all the fights in those those weight divisions. Um, people are more apt to watch a fight when they don't know who the other person is because. They, they they just no one I shouldn't say no one but a number of people really aren't aware of who all of these fighters are they haven't been watching intently on the WEC so it's kind of like why not pay attention it's not like when you see certain names in the middleweight division or heavyweight division you really could care less about that fight so I think that's a kind of works for them it's like well let's see time to learn who's who yeah Matt, why don't uh, you, uh... oh sorry go ahead Jason. Uh, I was just gonna say, you know, about the uh, the fighters being younger. I'm just wondering, are we? Do you think we'll ever really see, like, uh, how these guys fare in the division before they reach the top of it? I mean, if you look at Jose Aldo, who's in the early 20s, Dominic Cruz also, and we really don't know too much about. Well, we're just learning about how good Jose Aldo and uh, Dominic Cruz are. They just uh, burst onto the scene just a few years ago. I was just wondering if there's ever really going to be a chance for people to know how good these people are, these fighters are, before they wind up in the UFC and, you know, kind of take over. Before Matt, you want to you handle that one? I think here, here's the problem with, with 145 right now. We're missing the rest of the top half of the division, um, at least as far as the UFC goes, which is, you know, what we talk about and we – they have the best fighters in the world, so that's what we talk about. That's what's important. Unfortunately, at featherweight, more so than any other division in MMA, uh, a good portion of the really good fighters are still outside of the UFC. Uh, Omegawa signing was a, a big thing, uh, but you know, four of maybe maybe the top four uh, challengers that are out there in the world to uh, Jose Aldo are Viviano Fernandez, Marlon Sandro, uh, Joe Warren, and Hatsuyoki. Um, and none of those guys are currently under contract. We're, we're missing the rest. There's there's just a big gap right now. He's already beaten Mike Brown. He's already beaten Manny Gambirian. So there's there's two good fighters at 145 that we're not going to see against him anytime soon. And then the rest of the guys, as we talked about, are all you know 21, 22 years old. 
And after seeing what happened to Josh Christie when he was brought into deep waters for the first time, that's going to make them uh, a little more reticent to feed some one of those young guns to Jose Alda before they're ready. No, no point of, of ruining a guy uh, before they have a chance to develop and go against the top guy in the world just because they don't have any better options. That's why a guy like Mark Hominick is, is getting a title shot with a win because he's as ready he, as he's ever going to be. You don't have to worry about um, – you know, Mark Hominick's psyche going up against Jose Aldo, but you do it with Josh Crispy, you do it with Dustin Poya, you do it with Eric Koch, you do it with Chad Mendes, another young guy in the, the 145-pound division. It's just a matter of, I mean, it, it's it's great for the fighters right now because anybody is one or two exciting wins away from putting them putting themselves right in, in title contention, um, but we're just missing that, that the rest of the top half of the division. There's just a big gap right now. Uh, Jason, do you want to stay with us while we go over the rest of this card tonight? Uh, sure. All right, we're gonna we're gonna go from the little guys to the big guys. As uh, uh, Duke Rufus' uh, older brother, or at least the older brother of Duke Rufus's camp, Pat Barry, is going to be returning, coming off of a broken hand and a broken foot suffered in the first round of the Crow Cop fight against uh, Joey the Executioner Beltran. Uh, Jason, break down this fight for me and tell me what you see. Is uh, Ring Rust going to play a factor at all for Pat Barry? Uh, prob- if the fight goes long, which it probably won't, given the knockout power of both fighters, perhaps. But I don't think uh, – I think this is a, a typical matchup made by the UFC where they have one guy who's kind of – they where both fighters play like a stand-up game, but one of them is just better at it. And I think uh, Joey Beltran being kind of more of a brawler and Pat Barry being a more – precise, technical, clean striker, I think it's only a matter of time before Pat Berry cuts him down leg kicks or, uh, and delivers a knockoff. Uh, Alvin Carter, same to you. How do you see this fight Pat, going? I think Pat Berry's going to get the knockout on this one, and I want to say it's going to be with the shin. Um, I just think that's just how that one's going to go. I do think it will be an exciting one because both can throw bombs, but I, I think Barry might be, be back in form for this one. Yeah, this is a fight that I think is attractive to just about everybody. Um, I I am as big of a Pat Berry fan as there is. He was the first fighter that I ever met in person, and I still trying to dry off the, the, the pee puddle between my feet because I just totally marked out. It was absolutely sad and pathetic. Um, there's no way I'm ever going to pick against Pat Berry. I just like to watch the guy fight. I think he's fantastic and fun and all that good stuff. And I've gushed enough. Matt, save me here. Tell me about this fight. Yeah, I'm going to keep gushing over here. I love Pat Berry, too. Uh, this is the easiest fight on the card to call uh, unless Joey Beltran has just been shooting double legs over and over and over again in practice. But uh, he's he's called an executioner, and I don't think you execute somebody by uh, taking him down and laying and praying him. So uh, he's going to try and bang with, with Pat Berry, and that's a, a dumb decision. He's not uh, a tenth as good on the feet as, as Pat Berry is. Pat Berry busted up Anthony Hardonk, who's a very talented kickboxer. Um, and Erna, he had, an Ernesto Hoos kickboxer, no less. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I still believe he would have done the same to Krokop if he hadn't broken his hand and his foot in that fight and taken himself out of the fight mentally and, and kind of uh, given up, for, for lack of a better word. Um but I, I don't. Think yeah, his his mindset became buddy buddy instead of fighty fighty. Yeah, and it's it was I, I'm kind of hurt and, and not into this anymore, and, and that's what happened. Um, barring breaking a bone in his hand or his foot, I think he busts up Joey Beltran anywhere he wants to. Probably toys with him for the first couple minutes, um, and just 
picks whatever combination he wants to throw to put him away. Uh, Joey Beltran is at least a tough guy, which means we'll get to see him get punched in the face several times before he goes down. But that's the way this one's ending, uh, by Pat Berry, by whatever he so chooses. Um, Rich, quick question. Did you you get to look in Pat Berry's eyes as well? (laughs) Boy, I'm never going to live that one down. No, actually, I I feared that if I made eye contact, I would have fainted like a teenage girl at a Beatles concert in 1965. (laughs) So I chose not to. I I, I know my place. Um, At Duke Rufus's uh, gym, another heavyweight has trained up there in the past, although not directly for this fight. Matt Mitrione is going to be fighting on this card against uh, Tim Hag. Uh, Jason, Matt Mitrione is developing quite the uh, cult of personality. Uh, he's a guy, another guy that people like to watch. I mean, it's hard not to like a guy who you know goes by the name Meathead, and I mean, he seems to have his head in the right place. Um, he's obviously a very good athlete, having you know been on NFL roster for a while. Uh, what do you think of this fight? How do you see it playing out? I think Matt Mitrione is, de- is developing a really solid game. He's a uh, he has big power in his hands. He's becoming more uh, adept at using them. He's a uh, ex he has kicks as well. He's very good on the on his off his back as we saw against Kimbo Slice. But then again, how hard is it to look like a ground wizard against Kimbo Slice? So. It is fun with Joey Beltran. He looked good. I I, I think uh, Matt Mitrion takes this, although uh, Tim Haig has put together a pretty nice run to get himself back into the UFC. So kind of iffy, but I'll take Mitrion's decision. I know Mitrion's been working on his wrestling heavy, and he's uh, training down in Indiana with his uh, old old, uh, wrestling coach. Uh, He's down in Kokomo for this camp. Uh, Alvin, think he's going to need that at all, or do you just see him using his hands and, and taking Hag out, or do you see it the other way? I see him using his hands um, to take him out. I see him using his wrestling, um, possibly if if he gets tired, if he, you know his hands aren't doing what he wants him to do in the first round or the first part of the second round, but I see him going in and uh, actually being smart with his hands. He's, he surprises me every time, because you know I, I still think of him as the guy from the show, but he's Definitely gotten a lot better relatively quickly. And Matt, let me ask you. Uh, Tim Hag's a guy. Obviously, I mean, he. It's interesting the two heavyweight fights. Matt Mitrione lost to Pat Bear or beat Pat Bear, excuse me, at the guillotine choke at UFC 98. And then after he he lost in seven seconds to Todd Duffy, lost to Chris Tuchsher. He then lost to Joey Beltran. So there's quite a bit of synergy in the matchmaking here. And then obviously Mitrione and Barry have a history together. You know, having trained together from time to time. Uh, it, this fight certainly seems like it's set up that they want Mitrione to get a decisive victory. Is that what you see coming out of this? Yeah, I think that's that's fairly obvious from the matchmaking. Tim Haig doesn't really have any discernible skills other than being a really big dude. Um, uh, I don't I don't see him uh, taking Matt Mitrione down, uh, and, I, and I don't see him outstriking Matt Mitrione. Mitrione has has improved uh, at a pretty steady pace in each one of his fights that we've seen. Um, he's really taken to striking. Uh, working with Duke Rufus is probably a, a good thing to to do if you're looking to improve your striking, and, and he's done that. Um, but his his skills are behind his intangibles that seem to work really well for the sport. Though so he's he's uh, mature uh, already. He's you know in his early 30s. He's played in the NFL. Uh, he, he's used to being a professional athlete. He's not some 
some 21-year-old who's going to get caught with like a deer in the headlights getting to the big show, and he's proven that. He's, he has been ready um, since, since he stepped in the octagon for the first time. He's got a great chin. He stays composed when he gets into slugfest, which is probably going to be what happens here. Uh, and he generally comes out on top. I mean, it's 3-0. He's, he's, he's done what he's been asked to do so far. Uh, and, and he's because of the exposure he got on The Ultimate Fighter and the popularity he seems to be developing uh, each and every fight, uh, it just sounds like this is a, a fight that the UFC set up to continue his positive momentum. And there's one more fight on the televised portion of this card that I want to talk about, and that is the perpetually undervalued Cole Miller versus the perpetually undervalued Matt Wyman. Uh, this is a matchup that I really like. Um, Matt Wyman's coming off of a, a sort of victory over Mac Danzig uh, with that semi-submission. Cole Miller only has, if memory serves, two losses in the UFC, Jeremy Stevens, Efren Escudero. He doesn't have the big signature name under his belt, although you know a lot of people remember his uh, guillotine on Junie Browning and the, his triangle on George Horzel with 12 seconds left at UFC 86. Um, this is a fight which I think has fight of the night potential written all over it. I think Cole Miller is the better fighter, but Matt Wyman's a really good test for him. Uh, Jason, what do you see coming out of this one? And Alvin, what do you see coming out of this one? <laughs> I see, um, I, I think I want to see Cole Miller coming out of this one. I think if he's gonna he's gonna do it through submission like he likes to do, um, it it just seems like he's uh, he's probably ready. He's on a pretty decent streak, and I think he knows this is his chance to finally be like, okay, notice me again. And uh, I, I just that's how I see that fight playing out. Um, probably uh, I'm gonna even be since you're gonna ask me, probably a rear naked choke or something relatively dramatic. I think he's gonna get good going to get good position, take his back, and choke him out. Well, I actually wasn't going to ask you, but since you bring it up, I will. Uh, how do you see this fight playing out, and you think he's going to choke him out? Alvin? Hmm, I don't know. Yeah, he's going to choke him out. Yeah, Matt, I, I, that's how I see it playing out, too. Cole Miller is, is vastly underappreciated. Um, I think that that despite the fact that Wyman is a really good test for him, I just don't think he brings enough uh, for Cole Miller, uh, I, probably because he looks like an accountant more than a fighter. Uh, a little bit of Kenny Florian disease there. What do you think of this fight? Cole Miller taking it? love the fight. Uh, two, I think, very evenly matched guys. Uh, I think Matt Wyman is, is, is just as underrated as Cole Miller. They're both guys that you know, win more than they lose in the UFC and beat decent opponents, but just can't seem to put together that that long win streak and that one signature win to really move them up the ladder. So they get to fight each other in, in one way or another. Somebody should be getting a nice victory under their belt. Uh, this has a decision written all over it to me. Um, I didn't really like Cole Miller when he was on The Ultimate Fighter. He kind of irked me. He seemed a little bit like a prick, but uh, his, uh, you know, nerdy-looking southern kid who just tells everybody, no, I don't care what I look like, I'm a badass uh, thing has kind of grown on me. Uh, and he's a really talented fighter. He's He's got those really long limbs and a, a big head on top of a long neck, so he's always going to be a threat to get knocked out if somebody lands that big punch. But, you know, he adapts his game around that, tries to use his reach, and, and if somebody gets him to the ground or if he gets somebody else to the ground, he uses those long limbs to tie people up. Uh, both guys are very exciting to watch. I, I just don't see either guy being able to finish. I think the most likely finish would be 
either a late submission for Cole Miller or a knockout for Matt Wyman. Um, but I, I just see a, a lot of scrambles going back and forth with with uh, Cole Miller landing the, the more effective strikes on the feet and, and winning positional battle when it's on the mat. Um, I don't think it'll be uh, dominant uh, in any way, but a relatively clear-cut victory um, by decision for, for Cole Miller. Hello? See, I, I'm kind of... Oh, you there, Jason? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was just, uh, you know, I, I'm really hating my iPhone these days and my uh, cheekbone brushed up against the mute button, and uh, uh, <laughs> it's prone to happen. Um, yeah, don't worry about it. Tell me what you think about Cole Miller versus Matt Wyman. Yeah, uh, as I was saying to myself and no one else earlier, um, I think both fighters are... Yeah, uh, the audience. Yeah, both, both fighters are really inconsistent at times, but... Uh, they're both very solid. They're both friends, and they have some uh, apprehensiveness about fighting each other, which would be interesting. And uh, but I, I see uh, I see Miller taking his by submission. I think he'll rock him on the feet before uh, locking up a choke of some kind, similar like he, similar to the way he did against uh, Ross Pearson. Yeah, see, Cole Miller's got six or seven victories in the UFC, and he's finished every last one of those except for Leonard Garcia, but as we know, Leonard Garcia is impossible to finish uh, unless you're, you know, Mr. Mike Thomas Brown. Exactly. And to me, I would be very surprised if if Cole Miller wins this, he's going to choke him out, you know, or he's going to get an arm. I really don't see Cole Miller having a problem finishing him unless Matt Wyman just, you know, dominates and imposes his style on this fight. Um, I think this is Cole Miller's fight to win, but I think Matt Wyman's going to be really game and make it quite interesting. Uh, there are a couple of prelim fights that are now going to be aired on Facebook. Uh, go to Facebook's UFC page and like the UFC, and you will be able to watch Cody McKenzie versus Eve Edwards and Demarcus Johnson versus Mike Guyman on Facebook. I believe this is the first live sporting event ever to be aired on a Facebook stream, seeing as how the Super Bowl, you know, still is on network TV and, you know, not on Facebook. Um, Alvin, before we get into the fights, I actually want to talk about this. Um, you're, you're a business junkie, obviously. Is this just nothing but win for the UFC? Nothing but win. I mean... There's people that are going to like the UFC and now be subject to random updates and and whatever you send out via Facebook all the time because they say, hey, why not watch the fight? It's a great distribution channel. I do think the web is underutilized because usually companies have to set up their streaming servers to handle capacity and there's an expense and there's people involved. Whereas now, they're just Facebook's got to you know, they got this down. They know something about the Internet. So it's really a great way for the UFC to get more fights to the fans and to grab more people that might not be fans, but they now will be linked to the UFC. And most people are too lazy to unlink themselves with folks on Facebook. Yeah, because I know moving your right wrist three inches to click on that button, you know, carpal tunnel, it's a bitch. Um, Jason, I want to ask you, did somebody tell Dana White that that Facebook is the Internet and not Twitter? Uh, Dana White uh, seems the UFC in general is far ahead of pretty much every other sporting league in terms of using the internet. Uh, he uses his Twitter to gauge uh, reaction from fans, and now he's going to use Facebook to uh, actually show fights. Uh, I, I think he's very capable in ter- of uh, like gauging where his audience is and where people who watch MMA congregate. And uh, this is just a, another brilliant example of. Uh, of just that. 
And, Matt, I want to ask you uh, pretty much the same thing that I've asked both Jason and Alvin. Uh, there's no downside to this, is there? No, not really. Uh, I mean, Facebook is, is how people stay connected these days, so why not get the UFC on there? And the thing about Facebook is, as, as everybody who's on Facebook knows, if you hit like something, it shows every one of your friends that you like that something. So every time, for every person that, that says they like the UFC, there's going to be, you know, hundreds to thousands of people that see, oh, so-and-so likes this, what is that? I'll look at that, and then boom, that's another set of eyes on their product. And maybe they reach people that uh, never would have would have uh, um, tuned into the UFC before. I mean, if if they can do that with, you know, one person, that's one more person to, to be a paying customer of theirs and one more person who can expose their product to others. Uh, I, I don't see any downside to it. It's just a new medium for them to get their product out there. Um, and honestly, I'm surprised it's taken them this long to, to pull this off. Uh, I'm going to go lightning rounds uh, with you guys on three fights that are uh, on the prelims and, well, two fights that are on the Facebook prelims and one that's unaired. I'm going to give each of you guys uh, one fight to talk about briefly, and then we're going to move on to other news of the week. Um, I want to start with you, Jason, and give me a quick rundown on Demarcus Johnson versus Mike Guyman. Uh, Marcus Johnson's really tough, gritty fighter. I think uh, Mike Guyman will break and a uh, quick night, quick victory for uh, for Demarcus Johnson submission. Yeah, I kind of see it the same way. Alvin, I want to ask you about Mike Brown versus uh, Ronnie Yaya not being aired. Um, this is one of the the very few side effects of the merger, you know, where fights that would have made WEC TV aren't even making prelims now, and also ind- indicative maybe of the level of respect that the featherweight and bantamweight uh, division has in the eyes of the matchmakers in the UFC. Uh, that notwithstanding, just from a fight standpoint, what do you see coming out of this fight? I see, even though Ronnie Yaya hasn't looked stellar in a little bit, I, I see him uh, possibly getting Mike Brown um, on this one. Um, I I don't know why. I'm just basing it on the fact of I think Ronnie Yaya is due, and his um, I think he's 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 ready for this one. And Matt Palkey, there's one fight left. Is uh, Cody McKenzie going to get a McKenzie teen on Eve Edwards, or is <laughs> Eve Edwards going to dominate and slaughter and completely expose Cody McKenzie teen? Yes. I'm editorializing. So yeah, I can't, I can't repeat everything you just said, but I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, <laughs> Cody McKenzie literally has that guillotine, and that's about it. Uh, he got the exposure on the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, he got a win on the Ultimate Fighter finale that people got to see, so... They're capitalizing on what they think might be some positive momentum, but he's fighting a really tough, very talented veteran fighter, Neve Edwards, who uh, I think is probably familiar with defending a guillotine. That's my guess. Um, <laughs> I think he'll be able to avoid that, and if he does, he can he can lock up whatever he wants to on Cody McKenzie, or he can just st- stick back and, and, and throw strikes at him for three rounds. Uh, it's, it's really up to Eve Edwards. If Eve Edwards blows this fight, I would assume it would be the last time we would ever see him in the UFC. Yeah, I, I'm of the belief that Cody McKenzie's music should be taps uh, for him to walk out to the ring because he's not walking out of the ring when it's done. Um, we have 15 minutes left tonight. You're listening to the MMA Torch Livecast Tuesday Conversation. If you'd like to join the conversation tonight, call in to 646-716-8090. Make sure to press 1 to indicate when you're ready to talk. We'll try to get you on before the end of the show. We're here every Tuesday night from 8 till 9.30 Eastern Time. So if you're listening on iTunes, uh, download it throughout the week. Make sure to join us live on Tuesday nights. 
you can also follow us on the web at MMATorch.com as well as on your Android and iPhone apps. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com. Torch, yeah, twitter.com slash MMA Torch. You'd think an IT guy would know how to talk internet. And on Facebook at facebook.com slash MMA Torch. Like I said, we got 15 minutes uh, left in the show and a, a lot to cover. Uh, earlier this week, I believe it was just today, uh, UFC 126 prelims on Spike TV were announced. And the two fights that have made the cut are Michihiro Omagawa making his uh, UFC uh, debut return against Chad Mendez. And Donald Cerrone making his UFC debut uh, after a successful reign in the WEC versus uh, Britt Paul Kelly. Uh, not being aired, at least as of now, is uh, Kid Yamamoto uh, and his uh, American debut versus Demetrius Johnson. Uh, Matt Pelkey. I'm sorry, what was that? I said, what's up with that? Yeah, I know. What's up with that? Uh, Matt, since you're so quick to mock me, imagine that. I'm setting myself up, aren't I? Uh, these three fights, Omegawa and Mendez, I think has huge implications on the featherweight division because the featherweight division, as we said, is, is so up in the air right now. I think this will go a long way, particularly if uh, Hominick loses, to settling things out in that division. Um, if it were up to you, of the three fights, the Yamamoto fight, the Omegawa fight, and the Cerrone fight, uh, which one would you have left off of the Spike TV prelims and why? Um, personally, you know, just my own personal preference of which I, of the three, which would I least like to see, the Cerrone-Kelly fight. Uh, it's probably going to be relatively exciting. Most Donald Cerrone fights are, but it is easily the least important of the three fights. Uh, like you said, the, the Mendez-Omagawa fight is, is basically an alternate number one contender fight. Uh, in case Mark Hominick loses, that that the winner of that fight's gonna, you know, have a good case to to be made to be the number one contender. Uh, and Kid Yamamoto's UFC debut? Are you kidding me? Especially against Demetrius Johnson, uh, coming off his spectacular win over Demacio uh, Page. That's that's the best of the three fights, and and a, and a very important one for the 135 pound division. Winner of that fight is instantly a, a big time contender in that division, uh, and yet there's no guarantee we're gonna see it in in fights that. Our contestants at 135 are just naturally more prone to going to decisions. So um, I, I would rather they take fights for the bigger guys um, and, and put them on the prelims. That way, the, the fights that are more likely to end in, in quick KO or quick submission, then you can work them in. Um, but we need to see these fights. We, you, you can't establish uh, these weight divisions if you're not going to put some of the, the bigger names and the, the, the more important fighters on the main card. Uh, obviously, you know, there's, there's the concern that maybe Kid Yamamoto comes out and has a stinker of a performance, but you can at least type him up beforehand so the people watching, if he gets beaten, at least you've got a new contender on your hand in Demetrius Johnson. Uh, I, I just yeah, don't tree see... falls in the woods and no one's there to see it. Exactly. Uh, wh- why aren't we seeing this fight? There, there's no reason. Uh, I mean, obviously they can always work it in if they have time, but what if it's a spectacular three-round fight and there's just no time? Nobody's ever going to see that fight. Maybe in a few months that if there's enough buzz about it, it'll get put on a, a UFC Unleashed episode on Spike TV. But for the most part, casual fans don't go you know, out of their way to seek out fights that they never even knew existed. There's only so much Joe can say on a broadcast about a fight that we haven't seen. Not many people are going to you know, go to UFC.com and pay $1.99 or whatever the price is to, to see the, the, uh, the unearned prelims, especially if it's two guys they're not familiar with. The UFC needs to force 
uh, casual fans to be familiar with these guys because they need to make money off of these weight divisions. All right, Alvin, I want to send it to you. Um, Matt answered the question from the point of which fights he wants to see most. I want to ask you from a business standpoint, which what would be the one fight to leave off of the spike prelims from that angle? That's tough. From a flat business one uh, point of view, I think the fight they left off, um, leaving Kid Yamamoto off makes sense because people aren't necessarily the general fan. I wouldn't even say casual, just the general fan might not be completely aware of who that is. Um, and Cerrone has a name, whether it be because he's fought the same few people for the last few years and everyone knows him, they do. Chad Mendez is a beast, and Omigawa is Omigawa, and Paul Kelly's no one to laugh at either. So I do think for slightly more name recognition, that works. But um, I'll have to say I'd agree with Matt if I wasn't taking business into account and I would take Cerrone and Kelly off there and throw in um, Kid and uh, Demetrius Johnson. And, uh, Jason, I'll take a different approach with you. Just give me quick picks on those three fights. I know there's still a few weeks off, but uh, uh, the Yamamoto fight versus Johnson, Omegawa Mendez, Cerrone Kelly, who do you see coming out of those victorious? I think uh, I think Paul Kelly uses some wrestling to take a, a decision away from uh, Donald Cerrone. Uh, I think uh, Kid Yamamoto is definitely more than capable of uh, flatlining uh, Demetrius Johnson Mouse. and uh, yeah, yeah, Mighty Mouse, yeah, and uh, what was the third fight? Um, uh, Chad Mendez or Michiro Omegawa. Oh, uh, yeah, that might be ugly to watch. I, I think Chad Mendez takes a decision pretty comfortably. Three, three rounds. Uh, it'll look a lot like the Javier Vasquez fight and a lot of his uh, other WEC fights. Uh, really top control heavy, and uh, he's just going to grind away to a decision. See, I'm really hoping to see, you know, an armbar that I've that no human being's ever seen before out of Michihiro Omegawa. I don't think it's going to happen, though. I think Mendez yeah, would be very smart to. Thank you. That's the one. That. Yep. That's exactly the one. Yeah, that that was just beautiful to watch. I I don't think we're going to. I think Mendez is smart enough to say I can grow as a fighter later, but to beat Omegawa, I think I'm just going to take him down and sit on his face. Um. I want to move off of the UFC for the rest of the show, believe it or not, and I want to talk just a little bit of Bellator, as they have not only announced the eight participants in their welterweight tournament for Season 4, they've also released the fight pairings. I just want to go over these a little bit, because there are some names in here that would have looked really good in Strikeforce's overly thin welterweight division. Uh, we got four fights announced, and I think it's some very interesting matchmaking, uh, starting off with uh, Jay Haran. Uh, formerly of Strikeforce, mind you, taking on Steve Carl, uh, Rick Hahn, uh facing off against Judo Jim Wallhead, and then uh, Dan Hornbuckle, who is probably the biggest name in this tournament, going up against uh, former tournament winner Lyman Good, uh, who lost his title to Ben Askren. And then in the final, final fight, Chris Lozano versus Brent Weedman. I uh, just want to get, you know, we're not going to break down fights or anything because it's going to be Saturday nights on MTV2 during the busiest MMA period of all time when there's going to be an event every weekend for two months straight. But just give me your general thoughts on this whole tournament, the the matchmaking, what you what your uh, thoughts on it. Uh, Jason, let me go to you first. I think uh, I think it's a very good tournament. Uh, I like it a lot. I think uh, Jay Heron has to be the favorite to win this. I think he probably should have uh, gotten a shot at uh, Nick Diaz of being the strike for his welterweight champion at this point. But I think it's a very exciting tournament. We'll get to see some good prospects. and uh, yeah. But I, I think uh, Haran is just 
too experienced in a of a much higher caliber than the rest of his uh the, the rest of the tournament. Yeah, he doesn't seem to fit the mold of of what uh, Bellator's been doing. Normally, when they fight guys with name recognition at Haran's level, they they put him in super fights as opposed to in the tournaments, which they've been using to build up the younger guys. Uh, Matt. Uh, Give me your general thoughts on either on the matches or specific fights or just on, on the season as a whole. I think it's a fantastic field. Uh, this is a very, very good collection of, of welterweights that are not either in Strike Force or the UFC. When I say Strike Force, I mean Nick Diaz. Um, but <laughs> I, I think obviously Jay Huron and the winner of the Hornbuckle Lyman Good fight have to be uh, the favorites. I would assume we'll probably end up seeing that as the finals. Um, I, I'm a little. I think it's a little curious that they they matched up Lyman Good, the former champion, and Dan Hornbuckle, uh, you know, one of the top two or three fighters in the tournament in the first round. I don't really know what the the justification of that would be. Uh, seems like you would want to keep those guys separate, so it means a little more if they face <laughs> well, on the, the line. Win, but. The winner gets it, the winner gets Alistair Overeem's heavyweight title, first round of the tournament. You know, <laughs> they'll they'll probably at least actively defend that title. That's good news. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, I mean, uh, Brent. I mean, Brent Lehman, uh, Chris Lozano, obviously winner of that, uh, gets you know has the easiest easiest draw. Um, but then you know the dark horse of the tournament is probably Rick Hahn with his Olympic level judo. Uh, maybe he can toss guys on their head. But there's there's a lot of really intriguing talent in this. Um, you know that you have the former champion uh, Jay Huron, maybe one of the best uh, non UFC welterweights in the world. Uh, Dan Hornbuckle, a very very talented fighter that we saw a lot of last season. Um, they're just good fighters up and down this, uh, and, and at least we know with Bellator, uh, this this tournament's going to come off without a hitch, and, and uh, you know the, these guys are going to be fighting each other one or two months apart uh, for a couple months, and we're going to see a lot of really good 170 pound fights uh, from a, an organization other than the UFC. Alvin, uh, speaking of organizations, 170 pound divisions other than the UFC. Why did Strikeforce not make a concerted, a concerted effort to sign any of these guys? Because let's face it, if they wanted any of these guys, they probably could have signed them out from underneath Bellator. Uh, am I wrong in thinking that four or five of these guys could be TV caliber fighters in Strikeforce within a year's time? You're not wrong at all, but I think also Strikeforce might have been, um, and that's rare that you're not wrong at all. But um, hey, I, think I can Strike- cut you off. <laughs> I think Strikeforce might have been trying to prepare their resources for some of the guys they already have and gaining control of when they fight and how much money and time will need to be appropriated to, um, you know, Fedor, because they were still worried about him. And then also, if they do plan on doing more cross-promotion, there might be some situations where they have to have a certain amount of fighters coming in from other places and uh, just how it's going to work. So I think they didn't necessarily want to pay or have to worry about four or five guys who would actually demand to be on something higher than a challenger's card. Um, Waldo would have worked out well for them. And I think um, for Jay Huron, it actually works out possibly better depending on um, being in a tournament because you have more opportunities to win money depending how much they were going to give you for a fight or two based on what Bellator can do at this point. Because while they're doing well, it's still a young company and it might be hard to sign someone to a, a major deal after they've kind of tried that in some ways with like Roger Huerta and some other folks. So he has a chance to make a substantial amount of money in three fights, and he knows he's the favorite. So you get three fights, a shot at a title, and a good paycheck. It might work out better. 
Uh, we've got about two minutes left, so I'm, I'm going to give each of you 20 or 30 seconds for a final thought. Um, Matt, I want to start with you. Uh, what's the one thing that we haven't covered today that you just want to give a quick shout-out about before we sign off? Well, I, I'd want to touch on the BJ Penn's comments about fighting John Fitch, him saying, you know, everybody, all these other guys are really focused on winning, and, and not that I'm not, you know, doing that too, but for me it's more about going out and showing my fighting spirit. I just want to touch, like, fighters' motivations. It seems like those kind of comments can probably rub some people the wrong way and say, oh, well, BJ needs to be more concerned with winning. He needs to be more concerned with winning titles. BJ's climbed that mountain. Uh, He's one of the best fighters in the world. I think that would be dangerous for 99% of fighters not named BJ Penn, but I think he's shown over the years that he is uh, a special, you know, a special breed of fighter uh, who, you know, Matt, I got to cut Matt, I, I got to cut you off. Uh, we've got about 70 seconds left here. Uh, Jason Amati, thank you very much for calling in tonight. Is there any last thing you want to give 15, 20 seconds on? Uh, sure. Uh, actually, about the uh, on about the strike force thing with the why people don't uh, would choose Bellator over strike force. You have to imagine that with Bellator, you actually get guaranteed time every week on television on MTV2. That's a, a pretty big platform, and it gives a lot of young prospects opportunities that they wouldn't get otherwise uh that's a really good point uh alvin last thoughts on the week in mma um peace out aoki i hope i hope everything was good for you it was a good run (laughs) yeah you you totally and completely stole my point thank you very much deutsche bank uh aoki is contemplating retirement after uh losing four seconds into an mma round against uh nagashima at dynamite uh bye And to everybody listening tonight, and to you, bye. And to MMA Torch columnists, myself, Rich Hansen, Matt Pelkey, Jason Amati, Alvin Benjamin Carter III, bye.